Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No the Slate Political Gab Fest is sponsored by Casper, an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. Casper mattresses come with free delivery and returns within a 100-day period. And right now, get $50 toward any mattress by visiting casper.com political and using the promo code political. And by Trunk Club. Answer a few simple questions about your look, style, and size and receive a trunk full of great-looking clothes that fit perfectly and make you look amazing. Only pay for the clothes you keep and shipping is free. Go to trunkclub.com gabfest. And buy stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for a no-risk trial and a $110 bonus offer when you visit stamps.com and use the promo code GABFEST. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for August 7th, 2015, the Nine German Shepherds and One Raccoon edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I'm in a lonely studio, not at, not at our home studio. We're all scattered to the winds. John Dickerson of Faith the Nation, where are you? Well, I'm actually, I'm, I'm now back in D.C. I've a, after a very early morning flight from Cleveland this morning. And Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine, where are you, Emily? I'm in Maine, kind of oh. near New Hampshire, um, looking out on some nice trees from a little tiny room with a phone in it. Oh, so jealous. On this week's GabFest, the first Republican debate, more anticipated than, I don't know, a Jay-Z album, more DVR than a Game of Thrones finale. It was <laughs> Thursday night in Cleveland. We delayed our taping a day just so we could we could absorb it and and revel in it. Uh, did it live up to its expectations? Who won it? We'll talk a lot about that. Then Washington uh, is buzzing a little bit, buzzing with the possibility that Joe Biden will make a late dive into the Democratic primary campaign. Is that a true possibility or just a scenic rumor? Then it's a year after Darren Wilson shot and killed Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri. We'll talk about a new article about Wilson and whether a year of death and protest have changed America. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter and in Slate Plus, how to stay current on the news while you're on vacation, as Emily Bazelon apparently is all the time. I'm pretending to be current on the news, and I am no longer on vacation. I am working this second by talking to you. Yeah, but then as soon as we're done, you're going to stop working. Wrong, in fact, <laughs> sadly. Oh. But anyway. No. If you're not yet a Slate Plus member, you can get slate plus membership by going to slate.com slash gabfest plus and who wouldn't want to do that because we have a live show in san francisco coming up on september 15th to which you would get a, a buoyant superb discount if you were a slate plus member but even if you're not a slate plus member september 15th at the norse theater slate.com slash political sf we are doing a great big show we've loved our san francisco shows so far we're really looking forward to this so uh, uh slate.com slash political sf it's at uh, on September 15th. I don't know what day of the week that is. It's a day of the week. It is some day of the week. And um, we really hope you are there. 
Okay. That was that debate last night. That was amazing. That was that was the best two hours of television I've had this year. John, tell us about what it was like to be in the room. You were, were you in the room? Or were you just there? No, you're never in the room. This is the silly. First of all, it's much more interesting what you guys think than what I do because it's you're like I don't know. You have fresher eyes about it, but um, you're not in the room. It's you're in the room next to the room and separated um, by masses of black drapery. So. You're nowhere. You're, you you cannot see the 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 stadium hall in which the the debate took place. Um, so it's, you're in a room with you know 450 other reporters, um, which has had two uh, other areas. One was the sort of Facebook lounge area. Facebook was co-hosting the debate, and um, and then there was the spin room area, which I successfully stayed out of um but that's the, the the bit where it's empty for the whole debate and then just before the um the end it's flooded with surrogates for the candidates who come in and talk about how fantastic the candidates were uh who was who uh well just what was your sense overall of of uh who who performed better than expectations was, was there as much kind of enthusiasm as there was in, on my, in my living room where we thought it was, yeah, we, it was, it was a just great, so exciting. Yeah. It was a great show from the nano. I mean, it was a great show for a, a lot of different reasons. From the minute it started, the Fox news questioners were great. Their questions were wonderful. And the first one was, was perfect because, you know, we all laugh at the raise your hand, um, gimmick, but they used it in a genius way to say, um, would any of you on, if any of you on stage would not support the ultimate Republican nominee and would not, um, say that you will not run as a, as a, um, as an independent, raise your hand. Now I've said it with all those horrible double negatives. So you were probably confused by now. Um, but they did it in a much more elegant way because they probably had more sleep. But anyway, that this Donald Trump raised his hand and said, you know, uh, he can't say he wouldn't, um, support. I mean, he can't say he would support the ultimate nominee if it weren't him. He said, if he were the nominee, he would support himself. Um, and he, and he said that he would was not really pledge. The best line of the night. <laughs> if I'm the nominee, I will not run as an independent. Right. <laughs> and then he, he would not pledge, uh, he would not pledge to not run as an independent. And this received like booze. It got, um, uh, Rand Paul went after him for it. Um, and what was great was that then Trump in defending himself, he said, he said, we have a lot of leverage and it was great because there, there was like the deal maker in him coming out immediately. You know, he has leverage over the party and, um, because a lot of Republicans think if he runs as an independent, he'll steal votes from them and give the election to the Democratic nominee if it's Hillary Clinton. And so it right like from the word go, it was just a rollicking, you know, rattling cart trip down the uh, uh, down the track. Um, and we can talk about all the rest. But I want to think I want to hear what you guys think before I give you my larger assessment. I mean, I thought it was incredibly refreshing to have someone on the stage in the person of Donald Trump for whom there is sort of nothing at stake. He's not playing by the normal rules. He doesn't sound like a politician. He makes almost no point as he descend into the cliches about how America can be strong again, which are just so tempting and pulled in the other candidates way too often. And so it's like you have your... Wow, I got... 
I am what? so I, I look. Go finish your thought. Then I'll. Well, I, I just feel like it's like having your cranky uncle calling bullshit on everyone else, and it's not like what he's saying makes a whole lot of sense or is consistent. But it doesn't matter because he sounds like he's cutting through all these layers of pleasant pablum and tedium. But, and Emily, I don't mean to say that, that all the other candidates were just pleasant and tedious because there were other interesting moments. But I felt like it. Because he is setting this different tone, it forces at least some of the time other people to sound more interesting too. Uh, I I just think that that's that gives him so much more credit than he deserves. He half of his answers literally make no sense. You listen, you listen to it, and you think, I have no idea what the A to the C there is. Like I don't. There's no path. Totally, yeah. That there takes were lots of logically. undiagrammable sentences, but it's not even. Feel but it's like not that they're undiagrammable anyway. And you were it's like, not undiagrammable sentences. Is that it's an undiagrammable thought? It is well, not. Yes, there's not I a coherent completely. thought. But and, I'd and still so, rather so, watch that than have people saying, you know, and America can be strong again. I literally, if I if I could have wiped all the cliches out of the debate, I would have been so much happier than wiping Donald Trump out of the debate, e- nonsensical as he was. I think that gives. I really think that gives him way more credit than he deserves. And so, why were you for, riveted for, for two hours? Oh, it's not that he. I mean, he, why was I riveted for two hours? One, he is. You you just watched it as I was. I I use this for the title of the show. It was like watching nine dogs debating a raccoon. That you just had no idea what was going to happen because he was a different species, and so that was excite. That drama was exciting. But he himself provided. I was I was surprised. I thought he would have more substance. I thought he'd actually say something that was more persuasive than he did. That's number one. And number two, I actually thought the others were thrilling, and that there was a lot of drama going on. And seeing so them all in the wild for the in first time. Which which moments? Which candidates stood out to you? Well, for me, what, go ahead, John. You go ahead. I would just interject that we have no idea. There have been a bunch of different times where Trump has behaved in a way that people have said, oh, that's it. Like, it'll never, it'll never work. This isn't, you know, people are going to get turned off or the actor's going to wear thin or you can't, you can't insult POWs in general and John McCain in specific. And he has, he's not only survived, he's done better. That isn't to say that that will be the result here. I think it's to just remind us that we don't know what the weather's like in planet Trump. Um, and I think that, so that a lot of what you say, David, it could be true and could nevertheless not matter to the support he has. I think where it still does matter and where it where I think what we got was despite Trump's rise within the Republican Party, it has always been true. And um, there, you know, to the extent that he boasts about himself being up in the polls, those same polls have consistently shown two things. One, when you ask Republicans, who is the Republican you won't vote for? Trump is at the top of that list. Um, and then secondarily, when you run him in the general election context among registered voters, uh, which more closely approximates the general election or the head-to-heads with Democratic opponents, Sanders, Biden, and Clinton, he gets trounced. So for primary voters who are ultimately going to care about who can win in the general, that's like a huge problem. He did nothing to help that problem when he responded to the question about women and his harsh treatment of some of them, uh, or his verbal abuse um, and, the ba- and the mean names he called them. His response was to say, I'm sick of political correctness, which I think encapsulates the whole Trump both appeal and problem, which is the appeal is there are a lot of conservatives 
who think, you know, exactly. I'm sick of like not being able to say things the way I want to say them. And I'm sick of everybody mincing around issues because they're worried about being called a, a racist or sexist or whatever. So he taps into that. On the other hand, if you're, you know, the women's vote is not unimportant in politics and kind of his um, little criticism of Megyn Kelly wrapped into his answer shows that, you know, he's not going to be, um, he, he's not making inroads in the swing uh, voting women's population. And that, that would be important in a general election. So I think we got to wait oh, like a week. Absolutely. I mean, rationally speaking, the man is not going to be president and he's going to hit his ceiling soon. But I if, bet his numbers go up after last night, not because he was making a lot of sense, but because if you are disaffected and you're a Republican voter, wouldn't he just seems so much more forceful and compelling than to me than the candidates who are in that category who are on that stage last night? I mean, and I'm thinking now of Ted Cruz, Rand Paul, Mike Huckabee, Ben Carson, who I didn't like. He just if if you're if you're a protest voter and you're a conservative, I, I just feel like he's he. he is still gaining momentum. And of course it's going to fall apart because he's not obeying the laws of normal politics. At some point that's going to catch up with him, but I don't think yet. I, I don't think, I think John's point, original point is the, the key one to hold here though, Emily, which is that we have no idea that, that it's, that the, the behavior of the Trump's behavior, it's so, or the behavior of Trump voters is so erratic that we just really have no idea. Like we, his numbers could go up, they could crater, any number of but things But I don't think happen. they've been that erratic. They've been growing. They've been sta- – well, who knows who is answering the polls. But it, it seems to me like he's erratic. And yes, like maybe he could turn everyone off eventually by just doing something that's over the top. But he seems like he is just speaking his mind. And if stylistically that is important to you, then – and also it's not boring, right? I mean I still, David, want to hear like what you thought were the really compelling moments from other candidates. Because other candidates obviously were trying to offers of substance so so for me the 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 ones who were sort of shockingly bad i thought jeb bush was was shockingly bad i thought scott walker was was just poor um but i thought i mean obviously as a as a as a, a democrat john Kasich was was warm and compassionate and compelling i have no idea whether that has any valence in the republican primary electorate but i thought he was he was superb um, Marco Rubio felt wonderful. I mean, he just he exudes this air of, I mean, just happiness, of normality, of of reasonableness, of kind of calmness, of good temperament, and the things he said seemed um, they you know they made they more or less made sense. Um, and so, so to me, he those two were the the ones I thought came out of it looking great, along with Carly Fiorina from the earlier one, and. Um, and then if I were if I were a red meat voter, I would have thought Ted Cruz was, you know, was uh, feeding me something delicious. He was I found him absolutely terrifying in in a way that really surprised me. He was the one I came away thinking like this. This would be if America had this man as president, there would be something truly dire happening. And goodness gracious, um, I hope it doesn't happen. Uh, and the others were, were kind of non-entities. Huckabee. And Why did you think George Bush came off so badly, David? I mean, or, not George or Bush. Or I might call him Jeb Bush. That maybe that was Jeb part of Bush. It. He looked so much like his dad last night. But so maybe that's the, my excuse for that, that mistake. Jeb Bush, the former governor of Florida. Didn't you? I, someone I saw someone tweet this today. I can't remember who it was saying something like, "If you didn't know, 
if you'd come from Mars and you didn't know that Jeb Bush had raised all the money and was the front runner, you would never come away from that debate thinking he was anything. That he had none of the he had none of the authority that say a Mitt Romney had at this stage in two thousand um, in two thousand twelve. He just he just, he seemed to he seemed really to fade. He didn't he didn't have a forceful presence. He didn't have smart. Uh, things to say. He didn't say anything terrible. He just felt like a, a non-presence. What did, what did you guys? So so that was me. So so John, what what was your who who did you think? I, um, who grabbed you? So I uh, I kind of felt like nobody had if this if Republicans were looking for a sorting mechanism and is hoping that this debate would do it. I don't think they got it. I mean, they got it in one sense, which is that it was sorted into two different debates and there was a top 10 and then there were the remaining seven. But, um, but even there, Carly Fiorina seems to have done well enough in the first debate, according to all kinds of different metrics to kind of now be, you know, uh, leaping over into the first batch. So you now have, uh, and so I felt like of the 10 on the, on the, um, adult uh, table or, or the primary debate, um, nobody did, there was no great gaffe. There was no disqualifying gaffe. And so if you were a Jeb Bush supporter, you would think, you know, yeah, he, he said what he, you know, he, he explained his position on Common Core. He explained why Donald Trump um, uh, was, was offering the wrong tone for the party. And those were his two strongest answers, I felt. Um, and and because you're going to see in the guys what you want to see in them because you like them. But I think more of the objective viewer, I think David's right about I, I felt anyway about Bush and Walker that they did fine. They said what they were, they, but they didn't they didn't make anybody talk about them the next morning. Nobody's like, Agreed. wow, those two. So those, and I felt that was roughly the same. I, Huckabee's answer, he gave a passionate answer about Iran, I think. So he would have his supporters who love him anyway. He didn't do anything to discourage them. And his defense on Iran maybe is something people would say, yeah, he explained why I don't like the Iran deal. Um, Carson was uh, played the outsider and was sort of um, warm and people like in the conservative movement, they just like the, you know, his, um, his answer on race, for example, when he talked about, you know, when I go in and, and do a surgery, I operate on the part that defines you, which is the brain. It's not the skin. And that's a way of talking about race that's appealing uh, and particularly appealing to conservatives. Um, so I think there were things that, but, but I would put those two sort of in the category above Bush and Walker. I thought Christie and Paul had a great exchange about um, Paul. The Fourth the Amendment. Fourth, yeah, Paul uh, standing up for the Fourth Amendment, arguing that the government had overreached with the Patriot Act, and, and, and Christie doing what was a familiar riff for him, but arguing that he'd used the Patriot Act when he was a federal prosecutor, and then he understood, you know, uh, because of his uh, experience on 9-11, um, that these tools were important and powerful. It was a it was a an exchange that was kind of that was quite heated, that probably served both of them well. I would argue that that Rand Paul has the Fourth Amendment crowd already in his pocket. Christie, on the other hand, has to do something to grow his stature. He's he's you know he barely I mean he was at like the ninth spot of the ten getting in. And now he's given a he he was in a moment where he showed you know I'm strong on national security and I'm not going to let these terrorists uh, get away with it. And I think he also had a back and forth with Huckabee on entitlements and another answer on defense where he was clearly you know those policy speeches he's been giving paid off. 
Um, and he felt in command of his brief. So I think he, because he's got more voters who care about national security in the same way he does, probably had uh, got the better of that exchange just in terms of being able to milk it for additional support. I, the, the Kasich, I agree. I thought um, I, Rubio is the one that was that interests me because he gave some strong answers. His argument, to, you know, how's Hillary Clinton going to lecture me about people living paycheck to paycheck? I grew up living pay, you know, in a family living paycheck to paycheck. He also, I thought, gave a great answer about in the immigration question, immigration, which is a bit of a landmine for him because he worked with Democrats on a comprehensive immigration plan. Um, he said, you know, what about the people who call my office, who've been standing in line, who yeah, are going yeah. through the, the irritating and, and confusing process? And that, that was great. That yes. was, I felt the the real that was real art. People talk about how he's an he's such an artful politician, and I'm always never able to quite get there with them because the, his statement about how's Hillary Clinton going to lecture me? That's I mean, it's fine, well executed, but like totally familiar. But what he did on the immigration issue was he he brought emotion and uh, he just grabbed that issue, which again is one that's not great for him, and really like said like he just dropped it and said this is what's real like. So I thought that was pretty talented, but I still like have this prop, this hurdle I can't get over, which is, are the Republicans really going to nominate a one-term senator with no executive experience? Like at the end of the day, I know people don't, people vote with their guts, not their head, and I'm making a sort of head argument, but I just don't see how they, um, how they get there. Um, and if they do, it will be because Rubio did exactly what Obama um, did, which David Axelrod writes about in his book, which is use the campaign and moments like this in the campaign to create the illusion of leadership. In other words, you haven't done it in your private life or as a governor or, you know, or, or even you could argue that Ben Carson running these surgical teams was a leader of sorts. So you haven't done it. You don't have that experience as a leader with a person with executive experience in your private life. But because you perform well, voters in, in sort of convey it upon you because they say, oh, he was commanding. Even, and so you're literally doing it through the power of your rhetoric, which is what drives conservatives so crazy about Obama, that he's just a good talker. So if Rubio rises it will be by using the exact same road emily what about what's what's your diagnosis of the the 10 i agree with most of what's been said the people who surprised me the most were Kasich, who i thought just seemed smart and relaxed and pretty personable i didn't agree with everything he said i thought his answer about trump you know oh he's touching a nerve was pretty pandering and kind of a turnoff, but I generally felt like I would expect his numbers to go up. And I also thought Rubio was good. And I was surprised. I actually thought Walker was bad. Like I had the same amount of negative reaction to Walker that you had to Bush, David. And I, he reminded me of Rick Santorum. There was something like a little cloying about him. And I also thought the Fox questioners did a great job of asking questions that exploited various weaknesses. And it's a little tough on Walker, since he is a governor and has an executive record, they can say things to him like, hey, you promised 250,000 jobs for Wisconsin and only half of them materialized. There are these very specific weaknesses he has. And, you know, he had answers. It wasn't like he blew it in any big way, but he seemed surprisingly sort of like soft to me. And, um, He's someone I thought was going to seem much like come across in bold, vivid colors. And instead, he felt like he was sort of fading. 
Yeah. So so going to, as as we go forward, I mean, I guess the 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 folly of us making predictions, except for John, because he tends to make predictions based on data. But the folly of yes. you and me making predictions, Emily, is, but we're the ones is who well like known. to make them because we know nothing, and no one, <laughs> nothing is at stake for us. But it feel it feels to me like after this debate, um, Carson Huckabee, uh, Carson Huckabee, and all basically all of the the JV seven, except for Fiorina and maybe Perry, are fade away. Are done, and that that Fiorina gets to gets elevated. Fiorina gets to play, um, play on the varsity now. Um, is that your sense of it, John? And that we now we now have a different, slightly different lineup, or is it? Yeah, I mean, I think right. So my initial comment is is wrong in the sense that. There has been some sorting. We're now down to maybe eleven, where we were up, where we had seventeen before. Um, that's not much of a sort. <laughs> well, that's right. Well, I mean, that's debate, why. That, I don't know. That's pretty yeah, good. One yeah, debate. yeah. No, I mean, you, you, I mean, it's uh, so. But I, I so I'm going to stand on the idea that it's both things can be true, um, and, and I think that's generally where things stand because I think. What, what I think has happened is for the for the for the remaining candidates. So from for candidates twelve through seventeen, they need either a moment or they need the clouds to clear so that they can create their own moment. Well, there's not another debate until for another month, so that's a problem. And when they get to the other debate, they're going to be on the the B card again. Um, and until that time, you've got Trump creating clouds. You've now got. Other candidates who did well enough in this debate that people are going to be paying more attention. So you've got, you know, on the Sunday shows and the morning shows, it's now Kasich and Rubio. Plus, Walker and Bush will always be around because they've got a lot of money and people still like them. So there's a lot more, there are a lot more candidates who are now elevated by their performance and are going to get much, so it's that much harder to break through. You got to break through Trump and now Kasich, Rubio, and, and Walker and Bush, um, and maybe now Christie too. So I think that's going to be really, really, really hard. Um, and I think you even really think Fiori- Christie did himself enough favors. I felt like he was going to go away too. I guess I he think, at least had some bold, you know, pugilistic moments. I think he. Um, I, I think he did himself. I think he helped himself because uh, Christie has skill. And that was that he showed, I think, in that back and forth with Rand Paul. Mm-hmm. He didn't sh- he didn't shrink on that stage the way David described. He didn't fade the way David described Bush as fading. Um, yeah. And 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 Christie's kind of been fading since Bridgegate. I mean, he's been he was the he was the like guy that they were trying to get to replace Mitt Romney. He's the one that Mitt Romney right. said would be the nominee in this cycle. So, and I saw him when I was up in uh, New Hampshire earlier this week. Uh, at a town hall, which was the, I hadn't seen him for two months in a town hall and he's much, much better. So I guess the point is he's got a, he's still a, a long shot. Um, but you could imagine, you can see he's getting better and, and in his campaign, whereas you could argue, um, you know, Walker, maybe kind of plateaued Bush plateaued. You want to be a candidate that's getting better. And I think he is, I think he is getting better now, whether, you know, whether this actually amounts to anything in the polls, we'll just have to see. Can I just say I, I found his with the exchange with Paul and his his wrapping himself in the 9-11 hugs and his smugness about that just morally repellent in every way. I thought it was disgusting the way he did that. It was exploitative of the 
victims. It's like a it's a kind of play that that is it's just it's gross and, and yeah i was in a room with a bunch of people watching and at that moment there was a lot of like just sort of cringing going on i know it was you know it came across i think it probably came across rhetorically as very effective but it's it's it was it was gross enough when giuliani did it and he had at least had been mayor of new york and was you know mayor of the city which was which was the attack and we were closer to those attacks at the time but to do that 15 years later in that way, I thought was was, was yeah, vile. it was smarmy. That's why I thought I wasn't sure that he was going anywhere. Yeah, well, it, it it'd be interesting to see if that's the way conservatives would see it. I mean, there's, it's not impossible that they we just we don't know. I I would you know there are it's it's conservatives are obviously a far different right audience. Um, okay, last last question because we have to get to next topics is for you, John. It, do you think because Bush and Walker generally were perceived to, to, at the very best, to have been okay, and at the very worst, to have really uh, been been out of the picture. Do you think we will see any um, dramatic histrionics behavior from either of them over the next month to to make it clear, like, oh, we really matter? I I, I don't know. I think. Um... Walker is a pretty, it's so, I'm, this is a puzzle that I haven't quite figured out yet. He's a, he is not a risk averse uh, governor, right? Obviously he took big risks as a governor, but as a campaigner, he's pretty darn risk averse. And his answers were very, um, they were short. They were just basically edits of of portions of his stump speech. Um, And so you can see them, they've, they're, um, they're running some ads. They're putting out. They're doing the, some of the stuff you do to kind of say to at least the press, "Hey, look at me. You know, I'm Scott Walker." But I wouldn't. I don't. I don't really expect a lot of histrionics unless, like, the polls just like massively show some kind of shift. One thing that interested me about Bush and that I wrote, and it may even be true, is that on um, when he gave his answer when he was asked about how he had criticized. Donald Trump about the tone. And he, he said, yeah, I talked about his tone because I want to win. You could feel for a moment that the answer was more passionate in its delivery. Um, because yes, Trump and then had he went back to, to like America being strong again. And I was like, Oh no, can you please stick with like, I want to win. It's important for the party to win. That sounded like a, an actual thought in your brain. Yeah. And, and so I felt like Trump had pushed I, I felt like Trump had pushed all of them in one way or another into being more forceful, more pointed, more, you know, the way we want candidates to be is be loud and proud about who you are and what you want. And Bush needs to Bush's argument is basically, you know, I know how to win in the general election. We need to keep focused on that because we're going to ruin our party by fighting the same old battles in the primaries. He may be wrong. But that's his theory, and he needs to be able to forcefully articulate it in a combat environment. And Trump created a combat environment, and so there was a moment there where I felt like Bush was a little bit more uh, energized. That may not get no, – people may not carry that on. You know, They may not be talking about that today. But if that's true, and he was so inspired, then you could imagine him saying – because everybody talks about how competitive he is. You could imagine that sort of giving him the spur to be a little bit more uh, – kind of you know real uh, a little more blood in the face yeah mm-hmm. than than we've than we've seen so that was we'll, what i was we'll, trying to the point i was trying to make about trump way back in the beginning of the discussion you just said it much better the gaffest this week is brought to you by casper casper brings you an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly 
bare price. They offer free delivery and returns. And they have mattresses that have just the right sink and just the right bounce using two technologies, latex foam and memory foam, which come together for better nights and brighter days. There's a risk-free trial and return policy. You can sleep on the Casper for 100 days. That is a long time, 100 days. And then get free delivery and painless returns. Casper mattress has come to you. You're right to your door in a box. It's very nice. It doesn't, so you don't have to like schlep to the showroom. The mattresses are made in America and they are really well priced. It's $500 for a twin size mattress and $950 for a king size mattress. If you compare that to what you might pay in a showroom or from some of their competitors, that is an outstanding price. And there is, of course, a special offer for GabFest listeners. You can get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash GabFest using our promo code GABFEST. Terms and conditions apply. That's casper.com slash GABFEST. Is Joe Biden running for president? That is a question that Democrats are asking themselves after a strange Maureen Dowd column in the New York Times last week in which she described Bo Biden, uh, Joe Biden's son, on his deathbed, urging his father to make a run. The Biden speculation has been flourishing because of perceived problems in Hillary Clinton's campaign, which clearly has not caught fire yet. And there there are scandals dogging it around Benghazi and her email server. Biden allies have implied that he's going to make a decision about whether to run during upcoming vacation. So is this real speculation, Emily? Uh, I don't think so. There seems to me something a little bit sad about this. I mean, look, it's the death of Bo Biden, Joe Biden's son, is tragic, and he has a lot of sympathy right now. And so I believed the piece that ran in the New York Times in which various anonymous confidants and advisors of Joe Biden said, you know, we really can't figure out how to tell him that he should not run. He could do a lot of damage to his own legacy. He's too gaffe prone. The party needs to get behind Hillary Clinton. And yet I could also feel some sense of like why he would have this lingering ambition and have trouble letting it go. But I think he is going to let it go because there's something just too selfish and irrational about it. John, what do you think? Yeah, I I think that um, it's an interesting media story here uh, because this was a, the question is why this boomlet? Um, Part of it is perceived weakness about Hillary Clinton. I think, you know, Hillary Clinton's weakness is she's doing fine in the Democratic Party. She's she's doing really fine. Democrats like her. There's some people when you ask them, you know, Clinton or Sanders, they pick Sanders, but they, but unlike with Donald Trump, uh, they say, well, okay, but if you may be picking Sanders today, but if Clinton's the nominee, would you vote for her? And they say, oh yeah, sure. Of course. That's not true uh, with, with a lot of Republican voters about Trump. Um, but Maureen Dowd wrote a piece in which she uh, told the story of, jo- of Bo Biden when he was dying, saying to his father, you've got to run. And so that kicked up a new set of conversations. But, bas- but my reporting, both before this episode and then afterwards, is basically this is what was happening. People who don't like Hillary Clinton or people who think she's messing things up and will only continue to or who have uh, apocalyptic views about how this server thing is all going to turn out have all have gone to Biden and said you should run and that basically the office has been saying, well, thanks. And, and Biden has been kicking the idea around, but um, has been r- largely passive in the whole process. 
what's also true is that he knows, based on the people who have talked to him about it, that like this is a really hard thing to do. And why is it hard? Well, A, because Hillary Clinton is still very popular among Democrats, and those are the people you'd have to run against. B, she's got an organization that's well underway and lots and lots of um, – uh, effort going towards building the kind of organization you need to run a, a nominating fight. The next point is she's raised a great deal of money, which he might be able to match. I don't think so. He doesn't really like raising money, but um, it takes a lot of time. He would have to start from scratch and build a crackerjack ground and money organization while launching a campaign and not, you know, providing gaps and being flawless on the stump. So. And there's not like a huge, there's not that there is a draft Biden operation out there, but it's not like the draft Warren operation. There is not an ideological yearning for, for Joe Biden. Disappointment with Hillary Clinton is not the same as love for Joe Biden. I mean, he's not ideologically different than Clinton. He's not generationally different. He's obviously of a different gender, but most Democrats think that would actually hurt their case because they think that being a woman will help Hillary Clinton in the general election. Um, and the final point is, he knows how brutal this would be. How, you know, imagine it gets into the stage we know it would get into. And, and so then suddenly Joe Biden has to, like, be talking about Hillary Clinton's server and how Americans can't trust her. So that it gets into a huge dogfight. And that would be a kind of an unpleasant result from where he stands now, which is as this kind of wise man of the party um, who everybody has wonderful feelings about. Doesn't is there so assuming a, a worst case scenario for Hillary Clinton that, that the campaign is ongoing and then she she either uh, miss you know she she either misperforms in the campaign or misperforms in the campaign and the the email server just gets worse and worse and worse. There's a the party could find a way to pull Biden in as the candidate. It's pretty late on, right? assuming that no one else has gathered up those delegates. Can't he be a fallback candidate without actually having to put a campaign together now? I, in, a, in a sort of shooting the moon kind of way, maybe. Um, like if I don't, totally it depends on fell the, apart and had a crack up and there was an emergency. Also, I don't know the state of where pledged and unpledged delegates are. I've forgotten all of that information that we all knew by heart back in 2008. Um, but by the time you get to the convention, um, she will have won probably enough pledged, unpledged, and superdelegates. And oh, by the way, like the Democratic Party suddenly leaving and going to a new candidate at the last minute would be a kind of catastrophic admission of fail, you know, would be seen by people as a catastrophic admission of failure. And therefore, would people, delegates pledged to Clinton would be kind of nervous about doing that. Yeah. I, I don't like the the sentiment in that in that other New York Times story that oh Biden would tarnish his legacy I mean like screw that running for president if you think you're the right person to be president you want to make a run I think that's nonsense I mean I don't think you should run there are all sorts of kind of good reasons not to run for president but the oh you're going to tarnish your leg- legacy argument seems to me highly wrongheaded and condescending let him well I don't necessarily agree with the way that argument was framed either but when you think of it as like what's the choice it's doing all this hard low odds thankless grubby fundraising and organizing work that John just described or it's 
you know, you were a really good vice president. You have served the Democratic Party really well. You get to have some kind of other kingmaker, wise man role in the party. It just seems like the second option is so much more attractive. It's it's definitely more attractive, but let's say it's in his heart that he wants to be president and he's not willing to, you know, kill Obama to do it. So what's why is it so um why why would it be I mean he's a politician. What, why would he, why would you begrudge a politician who spent his life running for office, being on the political stage, taking that one last shot? And he wouldn't win, but there's no it wouldn't be tarnishing. It would be it would be you know the grand old lion makes his exit. It would be it would be. I great. guess so. Except if it's all just about you and it's not about ideological difference or really any attribute you have to offer that makes you more tra- like then it just seems you know kind of deluded and self centered. All right, let's hear from our next sponsor. Uh, which is Trunk Club. Summer's here. You are too busy cooking on the grill, sunning on the sand, looking at a forest in Maine, hosting Face the Nation, to even think about setting foot in a mall. The problem is you still need to look fresh. Trunk Club gets it. That's why they've taken the hassle out of shopping by shipping you a trunk of clothes that fit perfectly and make you look like a million bucks. At trunkclub.com slash gabfest, you answer simple questions about your style, preferences, and size, and are then assigned an expert stylist who handpicks clothes curated from the best premium brands that are perfect for you. You pick what you like, and just like that, a trunk full of handpicked clothes arrives at your door. You only pay for the clothes you keep. No ongoing subscription, no hidden charges, just great clothes. And right now, their service is completely free. Get started at trunkclub.com slash gabfest. That's trunkclub.com slash gabfest. Have a great summer with Trunk Club. Trunkclub.com slash Gabfest. It was one year ago that Ferguson police officer Darren Wilson shot and killed Michael Brown on the street of that city. Wilson was not charged with any crime in Brown's death as a grand jury decided that he had at least some reason to fear from Brown. But a Justice Department study found grotesque racism in Ferguson policing, notably in the endless harassing and ticketing and warranting of black residents as a way, largely as a way to raise funds for the city. Brown's death also sparked weeks of protests in Ferguson, and the year since has seen growing horror at the death of unarmed African-Americans at the hands of police, from Walter Scott to Eric Garner to Tamir Rice to Freddie Gray. This has been the year of Black Lives Matter, but also of more deaths, even as we see the activism against it. There's a profile of Wilson in the New New Yorker. Uh, Emily, what did you learn from that profile? To me, the most interesting part of the profile was listening to Wilson try to grapple with race and seeing him as a prism for, you know, white police officers and also, I think, for conservatives who are trying to think about um what they can safely object to about black urban neighborhoods. So, you know, he doesn't want to be the um, lightning rod for the conservative movement. He's trying really hard not to use overtly racist language. And yet he's saying things like, you know, they have a different culture there or, you know, race doesn't matter at all in police community relations, even though obviously he was struggling with just like knowing how to talk to black people as a cop. Um, so I felt like there was something both um, I didn't sympathize very much with him reading thousands of words about him, but I also felt like it was sort of useful to try to understand 
what the frustration that I think white conservatives like him have with the discussion we're having about race that's prompted by Black Lives Matter. You know, it's been such a summer of thinking about the role of history and sociology in um, the construction of urban neighborhoods. And, you know, how much are we still having this whole history that informs um, problems of poverty that are linked to race, that are predominate among black people? You know, Ta-Nehisi's book and the conversation about the Confederate flag has been so prominent. And yet there's also a backlash against that. But I feel like it's this sort of skulking, resentful backlash um, in which white conservatives are trying to figure out how to object to this and say, hey, what about personal responsibility without sounding like racists? Do you think, John, that that the Black Lives Matter activism, that all these terrible events, that the Confederate flag discussion, do you think they have actually um, changed American politics in a meaningful way. Do you think that Do you think that race is an important part of the conversation that politicians at a national level are going to be having, or not really? Because basically, it's a Democratic issue because Republicans don't get black votes, um, and that they they don't they aren't part of it, and therefore it really isn't isn't something that nationally we're grappling with. I think we nationally go grapple with it when these moments burst into the news and everybody has to grapple. So tragically, it's kind of, it's, it's got to kind of keep coming up in these flashpoint moments. I think as you quite rightly pointed out, there's not a Republicans. There are some Republicans, Rand Paul and Jeb Bush are the main ones who, and, and, and Mike Huckabee has been spending a lot of time in African-American churches who talk about improving the relationship between Republicans and African-Americans. Um, and, you know, Ben Carson um, doesn't, doesn't talk about that so much, but he, he obviously is a part of the race conversation on the Republican side. But I don't, I don't think, and we haven't, you know, Rand Paul has given some speeches and gone to some places, but that's not that, that isn't going to do it. I mean, we all know what it looks like when a candidate really throws his back into reaching out to a community and particularly a community that's skeptical about that candidate or his party requires a really sustained effort. And, and it's just in terms of the time candidates have and where it's most usefully spent. Um, I just don't expect to see a lot of it on the Republican side, on the democratic side, it will happen if Hillary, it'll, I mean, Hillary Clinton, her coalition to win relies on African-Americans and so she really wants, and particularly if you buy the idea that African Americans in a place like Georgia could could change the shape of that state, then you then you've got a real incentive for her to pay very close attention to what the African American community thinks about and cares about. But then you have to, and I'm way out of my depth here, figure out whether the specifics of the Black Lives Matter conversation, um, how that exactly affects affects the African American vote. Um, and and I don't know what the, you know, what the answer is to that. I mean, obviously, the and broader... what are the reforms you get behind? I mean, the Black yeah, Lives Matter right. movement, obviously, you know, they want police to stop killing unarmed black people. Certainly a reasonable request. But then how do we get there? What's the most important? Is it training police in implicit bias? Is it making sure we have more African-Americans on the police force, which is still not the case in Ferguson and a lot of communities like Ferguson? There are all these 
questions and they are so local in the end. Um, you know, we've learned a lot, if you've read about Ferguson, about the suburbs that are in a ring around St. Louis and how segregated they are and what their history is. And then if you multiply that by all the places in the country, small and large, it just starts to feel like you need um, some really intensive efforts from place to place to transform each one and just so much effort and work going into that. The most depressing story I read in that vein this week, Emily, I don't know if you saw this, I think it was a CNN report where they looked at kind of the ticketing and warranting that was going on in Ferguson. Mm -hmm. And so one of the, one of the complaints about Ferguson, a lot of these, these small, heavily African-American jurisdictions with white police forces is that there's a lot of use of just the the kind of trivialities of the law to raise money from citizens and so you give people lots of tickets you if they don't show up at their court date you there's an arrest warrant out it just becomes this this form of endless uh either pain up or harassment and which sometimes and you end up in jail because of it and that in ferguson if you there was this justice department report savaging Ferguson for doing this. And you saw a brief yes. drop in the number of of warrants that they're issuing. But it's all it's all just jumped right back up. So in fact, right. in Ferguson, the, the, the very thing that they were doing, which was really the instigating force for why why so many black citizens had, had antagonistic relationships with the cops, they, the cops are continuing to do because I'm sure there are financial pressures on them or that's just the way they were trained in, in policing. So, so that's a thing which isn't – it's not visible in the way that body cameras are visible. Um, but it's a, it's a day-to-day form of oppression that, that, um, that's a, it's a real problem. The other thing I listened to this week on This American Life, um, my colleague at the Times Magazine, Nicole Hannah-Jones, had a, to me, really powerful story about a a sort of accidental integration effort that was also around St. Louis. There's a mostly black town called Normandy, and their schools were failing, and so a thousand black kids got bussed into a white suburb. And um, and some of it actually, like, went well, and it's a very pro-integration piece, but the tape of the white parents in this suburb, their initial reaction before the black students Ugh. actually arrived, yeah. the idea that they're going to be, oh, my, didn't you find that so yeah. painful and horrifying yeah. to listen to? Oh, so oh it was awful. awful. The, the awful. Um, right, it's true that the, the really big solutions, which have always, I, in my view, always come back to things around uh, school integration and uh, jobs, are no one's really talking about that we haven't gotten to the the william julius wilson dignity of work opportunity of work parts of this it's really been focusing a lot on sort of cop behavior and training cops but but so much of what um is actually and and especially as we as we're as one of the nice things that's happening in this country which does seem to be happening on the right is the the conversation about sentencing reform and prison reform and just getting people out of Getting people out of the, the the criminal justice system more quickly and 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 with serving less time that, that that's a really good conversation. But it also means that you're going to have all these people who we've we've uh, we've shipped off to be just to to be warehoused in prisons who are now going to be living in communities who need things to do, who need meaningful work, and who need um, meaningful opportunity for education. And it's uh, no, there doesn't seem to be any grappling with that at all from really from anybody. Yeah. 
And all the racism that informs the discussion affects people's employment opportunities as well. Yeah. All right. Um, We have one more sponsor this week before Cocktail Chatter. We're sponsored this week by Stamps.com. Getting your mailing and shipping done can seem like a no-win situation. Going to the post office takes up valuable time. Leasing a postage meter is expensive and has multi-year commitments and hidden fees. But there's a better way, which is Stamps.com. With Stamps.com, you can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package right from your desk using your own computer and printer. You can even get special postage discounts you can't find at the post office. And Stamps.com, it's more powerful than a postage meter and a fraction of the cost. You can save up to 80% compared to a postage meter and avoid all those time-consuming trips to the post office. We have, of course, our special offer using our promo code GABFEST for a no-risk trial and a $110 bonus offer, which includes a digital scale and up to $55 in free postage. For all the details of the special offer and to sign up today, go to stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in GABFEST. That's stamps.com. Enter GABFEST. So, John Dickerson, in the post-debate bar scene, what were you chattering about? Or what would you have chattered about? There we yeah, had I been able to get a to... word in edgewise. <laughs> yeah. Um, I am chattering about, unfortunately, it's a visual chatter, which, uh, for which I apologize. But um, for um, every day, for the last um, five years, a Japanese artist named... Uh, Tetsuya Tanaka, I believe is the way you pronounce it, has done a daily picture of these tiny, tiny, tiny little miniature people um, engaged with everyday objects. So a piece of pasta becomes a slide, a broccoli branch becomes a tree on which these little people swing. The these notes... are not real people, John? No, no, these are tiny little figurines. Okay, um, thank you. To... Computer chips become uh, grand pianos. Um, Cassette tapes become treadmills. A toothbrush looks like a shower. These little miniature dioramas, or is that what they're called? I don't know. That's the word that comes to mind. Are just they're just amazing. And he does one a day. And why um, why is it the daily part of it interesting? Not interesting. Why? Well, I mean, just the the daily regimen of. I think they take quite a lot of time. And just the sort of daily regimen and practice. And also, when you look at them, he's been doing them for quite a while, um, the endless creativity with everyday objects turning, um, you know, just things you see, um, you know, how you make a cracker with cheese on it look like a skating rink. Um, or uh, his, it, like the way you make an egg carton look like the mountains in, in Star Wars. It's, um, it's just like, it, it's amazing creativity and the dailiness of it is something that strikes me as like, I just couldn't do, I couldn't come up with this much. Um, and, and also the way your brain gets trained, you know, um, if you've ever been really looking for something around the house, your like brain goes into this interesting tunnel vision in which you see all and sort all things relative to your pursuit. And so what it must be like for this guy when he looks at objects, never as what the object itself is, but at what it can be if it's thought of in this miniature, teeny, teeny, tiny little world with these little figurines. Um, and uh, so go check it out. It's at um, miniature slash calendar.com. Awesome. All right. Uh, Emily, the Baz. <laughs> 
There was an important um, decision by the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit about the Texas voter ID law, which was basically a win for the plaintiffs who are challenging this law. The um, These Fifth Circuit judges said that the law did have a discriminatory effect because so many more of the people who would likely be barred from voting or have a harder time voting would be Black and Hispanic voters. The basis for the decision is an amazing 147-page opinion by the district court judge in this case. It wasn't a total win, though. The Fifth Circuit um, rejected the district court's ruling that Texas, in passing this law, had had a discriminatory purpose. And this is just such a difficult bar to me to say, you know, people don't, legislators don't go around saying, let's keep the black people from voting anymore. Nobody, that kind of smoking gun evidence um, is easy to avoid and hide. And so that part of the ruling is gone. And the question, I think, is what the remedy for Texas is going to be. This was a panel of three judges. It was a Clinton appointee, a Bush uh, two appointee, and then a district court judge appointed by Obama. So it was a pretty liberal panel. But in the end, what they were suggesting for a remedy was more widely available forms of ID. And uh, and so we'll see what kind what the district court judge ends up adopting and what the effect and the real impact is in Texas. It does seem, though, like it's sort of heartening for um, lawyers who are trying to sue using Section two of the Voting Rights Act, the part that's still left that didn't get struck down by the Supreme Court. This suggests that you if you have a really strict voter ID law that um, as a state you can get in trouble under Section two. So um So, you know, it's a narrow but um, important victory for voting rights advocates. All right. Uh, My chatter. I'm in the midst of consuming all sorts of just magnificent culture these days. It's it's really delightful. Uh, I'm I'm finally reading. I'm the last person to read the uh, Elena Ferranti trilogy, the Neapolitan. Oh, so good. Which is amazing. It's fantastic. And then I I. I'm not the last person to see the Amy Winehouse documentary. I know this because I keep urging other people to see it so I can have a conversation with them about it. You must see the Amy Winehouse documentary if you're somebody who is interested in Amy Winehouse at all. It is, it's a fascinating movie and she is a, just a absolutely gripping, complicated person. Um, and I just need to. I, I just. I need to have somebody I can talk to. One about her art, which uh, I have very different views on now that I've seen her movie, and two about what her fans' culpability is in her death. Which a lot of the reviewers make this case that that the movie the movie suggests that we are all guilty in in Amy Winehouse's death. And I really did not come away thinking that. And I just need to have some. I need to fight with somebody about that. So so please go see the movie and then call me so that we can have a fight about it. Um, so that's, that would be my urging. Have either of you guys seen it? You got to see it. No, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. I can't wait to see it, but um, then we'll argue with you. Our interns, Tark Barrett, our producer is Mike Volo. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. Joel, you're also, I think Joel also produced today's show because Mike isn't here. So I'm assuming that Joel's producing it. So thank you for that. Hey, David. Yeah. Actually, uh, our freelancer, Matt Collette, is actually going to do the heavy lifting. I just do the glamorous stuff of talking to you guys. Matt Collette? Yeah, he's, okay. he's sitting here silently. Uh, Hi, Matt. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Matt. Just leave this oh, he's like in. He's been sitting there silently? He's like Rob yeah. Dubbin. All right. Matt Collette. <laughs> just, just, just keep this whole thing in. We'll do. Um, yep. Okay. 
Uh, that was Joel. My, Matt has remained silent. Yeah, he's not allowed to talk yet. He's we're we're gonna see how he <laughs> he edits and mixes the show, and then we'll let him talk. That's that seems like Jeez. a good, good policy. Seems like good. I, I didn't see, pass that I test. I can see why Slate Podcast is the Titanic Empire that it is with that <laughs> silence. Don't speak unless spoken to, and even then, don't speak. Uh, Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcast. The Gab Fest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes slash iTunes.com slash Panoply, excuse me. Our show page is Slate.com slash GabFest. It has links to what we talked about today. Our Facebook page is Facebook.com slash GabFest. Our Twitter feed is at SlateGabFest. And our email address is GabFest at Slate.com. You know, one thing I didn't, I haven't figured out is we put up this diagram Donald Trump sentence challenge, which got a huge amount of social media retweeting and following and reading. But I don't know if anyone actually undertook the challenge. I, I haven't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, Somebody people did. totally they, did. They did. I mean, there were two excellent, yes. uh, two excellent um, entries. One was a proper, a proper. Yeah, thank you. Sorry, the lack of sleep is, is taking me by storm. Um, the one was a beautiful uh, diagramming of the sentence using, um, using all kinds of symbolism. I didn't even know it was part of that. Um, and then the other was trans- turning into an, like an E.E. E. Cummings poem, which was was even was was far better than what we did and uh i think we should find a way to publish both in oh good um, where did you guys form. see that i didn't see this they were sent to us at the mail uh the oh. um, email address do you, that you read have at email? The is that a thing in your life email i, I do and i, yeah. I email I, obscura email <laughs> all right uh okay well thank you those of you who submitted Please subscribe to the GabFest on iTunes. Leave a comment and rating while you're there. You can search for Slate Political GabFest in the iTunes store. For Emily Bazelon, vacationing Emily Bazelon, and, and sleep-deprived John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. We will talk to you next week and come to our San Francisco live show also. Hi, I'm Mark Oppenheimer, the host of Unorthodox, a new podcast from Tablet Magazine. Each week, Unorthodox dissects the news of the Jews with conviction and with wit. But, you know, we're not just for Jews. We also invite in a guest non-Jew to ask us questions and even occasionally offer some constructive criticism of the chosen people. Immediately off the top of my head, you guys have way too many holidays. You really do need to edit the list down. You can listen to Unorthodox each week on iTunes.com slash Panoply or at tabletmag.com. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. 
It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.